0: I must confess, it's it's slightly uh, strange feeling to be uh, introduced as a guest speaker. Uh, <laughs> I have been here once or twice before. Um, my name's Tom, if you don't know me. Um, Hi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> <Which one? laughs> so today i will be looking at um, quite a familiar passage of the bible um it's one of the more well known passages it's the parable of the good samaritan we're, we're in the middle of a slightly unusual series we're alternating between uh, a parable that jesus told so like a, a surprising challenging story Uh, one week and the next week we'll do one of the psalms, a particular group of of the psalms that were sung on the way up to the festivals in Jerusalem, then back to another parable, another psalm and so on and today we're in the parables. But what we've learnt in the psalms will actually uh, kind of really help us today because uh, this parable, this story today is actually set on the same road um, that the people would walk up as they were singing these songs of ascent we've been looking at in the psalms. So all the background we've been hearing about there that will be relevant and help us today. So, are you ready to read it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you need to open your Bibles to Luke 11. What? Luke 11, and then I'll read from verse 25. Luke 10, Luke 10. I saw Big 11, but that's after the passage. Luke 10, verse 25. We'll edit that later for the recording. Luke 10, verse 25. Thanks. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look into this passage three times tonight, and we're going to see three different stories. First of all, we're going to see the story of the story. So um, the actual parable that Jesus told, we're going to look at it on its own terms. Second, we're going to see the story of the conversation. Because Jesus told this parable in the middle of a dialogue with this guy. So we're going to look at the dialogue and what we can learn from that, what God would want to challenge us with from that. Then third, we're going to look at the story of the gospel. Because this passage, like any other passage in the Bible, only finds its true meaning when we understand the big story of the Bible as a whole. So first we're going to look at the story of the story. Uh, it's, It's a parable that Jesus told, and its theme is mercy. Its theme is living your neighbor responding to human need with compassion it starts in verse 30 it says jesus replied a man was going down from jerusalem to jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead now this road from jerusalem to jericho this was a very dangerous road It was about 17 miles long. It was quite straight, but it descended 3,000 feet in those 17 miles. It was quite a steep, uh, kind of decline, descent sort of road. And um, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, they're on the downhill bit. um, But it was a place where robbers and bandits (coughs) did hang out. The, The guys that Jesus talks about in this story, there really were a lot of guys like that who were present in this area. Travellers really were in um, for a very dangerous time. Some of you might have been here a few weeks ago, and when we're looking at the Psalms, and it's, um, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? Because they're looking to this hill thinking, man, this is a dangerous place to be. It is a dangerous, scary place. So the story is quite a realistic one. It's a story of things that did happen as travellers were on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho. But the fact that it it was quite a common thing doesn't take away from the fact that it was quite a serious thing as well. This guy took a real beating. It wasn't just like he was walking and they ran up to him and grabbed his phone and ran away again. It wasn't like they just threatened him a little bit. It wasn't like they just gave him a few slaps and left it there. They beat him proper. They tore the clothes from his body. They left him stripped. They beat him and left him half dead on the floor. This was a pretty severe and serious situation. He couldn't call an ambulance. He couldn't haul himself to a place where he could be helped. He could just lie there in the dirt and in his blood knowing that unless somebody stopped and helped him, he would die. He was entirely reliant upon the mercy of a passerby. Now, I guess kind of some of us would just put ourselves in the situation and think, I don't really get what this story is about. I mean, obviously, like if I was there, I'd help. Like, obviously, if, I, if I'm on my way home tonight and I see someone lying in their own blood about to die, I'm, I'm going to help them, aren't I? I think most of us probably would. And I think if it happened again tomorrow, I think most of us probably would help then as well. How many times would it take before it just became too ordinary for you to care? What if this happened every time you were walking this road? Every time you journeyed to Jerusalem, there's always someone. There's always someone else and another and another. You see, there can, there can become a time when a heartbreaking situation can become so normal that our hearts stop being broken by it. I remember I took a trip to Mumbai. Um, one of the first things that struck me was the, the kids who lived on the street, just the real extreme poverty, disease, and like, these kids would, would sell anything just to get something to eat, like a lot of them were uh, forced into prostitution just to live. It was heartbreaking. By the end of the trip, I was really having to fight to notice. Because every day as I'd gone out, this was what I was seeing. and th- There's something about it that you, you just, without realising, tend to become acclimatised. And I'm having to just fight and check myself and be like, no, this is, this is awful. And I'm seeing it again, but it's still just as bad. It's still just as terrible. Or in London. How many times do we have to walk down the street um, before we stop being bothered that there are, there are people with no shelter and with no food? Heartbreaking situations can become normal we stop being heartbroken, we stop caring, we stop showing compassion. I think that's the kind of situation Jesus is describing here. It's a tragic but commonplace need. The people involved would be used to it, the shock and surprise would have worn off. What's left is the hard, inconvenient slog of showing compassion for another human being in need. That's the kind of situation. Some of us would respond by saying, well, yeah, okay, I know that here and now I don't respond to all the needs around me. But if someone was dying, I'd respond then. Listen, you've kind of missed the point if that's what you're thinking. This isn't about kind of grading needs from like most severe to least severe. This is about your heart. This is about compassion. If you care, you care. And if you care and you see a need, you'll meet that need. That's what it's about. Your heart, loving your neighbour as yourself. Well, into this context, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priests, um, I'll just explain who these guys were. They were the descendants of Aaron. Uh, Now, he was Moses' brother. So it's all descended from this one guy. And they were a group of people who God had set apart to serve the whole nation of Israel. And the way they did this was in the temple by overseeing the sacrifices and kind of acting as like a mediator between people and God. That's what their role was meant to be. And as we read this story instinctively we can be quite harsh on the priest. He just walked past and left this guy to die. What a loser. Before we get too harsh on him, let's kind of just enter into his world and try and understand his situation. Because chances are he was on his way back from serving in the temple. If he was coming from Jerusalem, more than likely that's why the way they organized the priests they had 24 different groups of them they were called courses and each of these courses got to serve in the temple once for a week every 6 months so they rotated like that and each one of these courses was made up of like several families of priests so even when it was their turn not every priest would get to go so each individual priest would probably get to go and minister in the temple once a year on average Well, this temple service, this was an honour. This was a real privilege. It was what these guys lived for. It's what God had called them to do, what they'd been set apart for. It was the real high point of their year, of their life. It was their God-given purpose. And it didn't come around all that often. So um, imagine this guy on his way back from this time in Jerusalem. It's basically like, imagine he'd just been to like New Day or or Soul Survivor or one of these kind of really hyped up Christian festivals where you just get so um, meeting with the presence of God and you're so excited and you're going for it and you're on your way home, that's this guy. A couple of other bits of context as well. Um, A couple of scriptures from the Old Testament to share with you. Leviticus 21, it says, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. Or another one, Ezekiel, chapter 44, verse 25, also specifically addressing the priests in the context of a prophecy about a new temple. It says, They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. So with all that context, I want to unpack for you four really, really good reasons why the priest might have been thinking, I just can't help this guy. The first one is about ceremonial purity. Because imagine his situation. He's going past, and the scriptures say he's not allowed to even go near a dead body. Now he sees this body covered in blood, lying in the dirt. He probably doesn't know if the guy's alive or dead. You know, the scripture says he's half dead. To find out for sure, he'd probably need to get in close, have a look, take a pulse, search for a heart rate. But then if he was dead, he's just broken scripture, hasn't he? He's just gone close to a dead body, which the scriptures told him not to do. So to be sure of staying ceremonially clean, he needed to pass the guy by. But to be sure that he hadn't neglected an opportunity to show mercy to a guy in need he'd have to approach him. It's a real dilemma. It's a real tough one. Because if he got it wrong, if he approached him and it had turned out the guy was dead, he'd be ceremonially unclean. What would that mean? It would mean he'd have to turn around, he'd have to walk these 17 miles back up this steep hill to Jerusalem. He'd have to go back to the temple to the guy who took over from him as the priest and say, yeah, we've got a bit of a problem. I'm, I'm kind of unclean now. He'd have to buy a massive cow, offer it as a sacrifice, you know, burn the thing. The whole process of becoming clean again would take seven days. He'd need to stand in line with all the other sinners. It would be embarrassing, and he needs to wait for this other priest to pronounce him clean again. So it's not kind of a straightforward thing for him. You see, if I get this wrong and go near the guy, that's what it would cost me if it turns out he's already dead. Well, what does, what does this mean for us? What does this kind of thinking, does it ever crop into our head? Well, we're not part of this same, like, ritual cleanness deal that um, the priest was, that the Old Testament guys were, But still, um, the idea of giving an impression of being clean and pure before other people can be big for us. It can deter some of us from getting involved with the mess and the needs in other people's life. So we pass by. An example, um, I was on the Tube about six months or so ago, and... Like, it was quite busy. Like, pretty much every seat was taken, but it wasn't like rush hour sardines kind of deal. But at the other end of the tube, this guy gets on and he starts kind of wandering down, approaching everybody, asking them for money. And people were just ignoring him, just pretending he didn't even exist. They weren't even saying, Look, sorry, mate, I can't help you. Just totally blanking him. And he's makes his way down uh, and he's approaching me. Well, I know what the scripture says about this. I mean, Jesus said quite clearly in the context of people begging for money, um, whatever someone asks of you, give to them. So i well, okay, so I need to give him something. Uh, and I'm feeling compassion in my heart. I'm like, imagine how desperate a situation you need to be in to be going to person after person who's pretending you don't exist because you need the money. I'm like, man, that's, that's tough. I'm going to give this guy something. But as I was doing it, as I was giving something to him, what was going through my mind is... Everyone else on this tube is going to think I'm a total mug. Everyone else is going to look at me thinking, Who is this? What what, what are you doing? Why have you given some money to him? Because something in my heart was saying, What matters more than showing compassion to this man is what everyone else thinks of you. It's ridiculous. But it was there. It was staking a claim. Reason number two that the priest might have had not to help him. Busyness. You see, to, to do his week in the temple the priest would have had to drop a load of commitments at home because they'd be kind of ministering to the people near where they lived as well. Any of you ever been on holiday and then got back to work on the Monday morning and seen how many unread emails you have? See how long your to-do list has become just playing catch-up for your holiday. When you take a week off, you, you really do kind of come back and you're up against it. Well, that would be the deal for this priest as well. He'd have to drop a load of stuff. He'd be on his way back and he would have a lot to do. And to help the guy, it wouldn't be kind of a quick fix. It wouldn't be a, oh, come on, mate, get upright call. Cool. It would be long. It's not a quick fix because he'd have to, we'll see later, he'd have to soothe the wounds. He'd have to give up his own animal and walk with this guy on the back of the animal. He'd have to take him to an inn where he could be nursed back to help. It would be a a really kind of drawn out thing that would set his own commitments back even further. Again, this one can be a real big reason why we don't want to show compassion and mercy to other people. There's a game in our culture. It's quite popular. I think it kind of creeps into our church as well. It's called the I'm Busy game. Some of you may have played it. I'll explain to you the rules of the I'm Busy game. It of involves two players, although more can get involved if they want to. But, but what you do is you find somebody after the service who, probably for a, at least a week you haven't talked to, and you say to them, ''Hi, how are you?'' And then they reply with, ''I'm fine. I'm busy.'' They go, like, oh, how so? Well, I've got two essay deadlines and work has kind of up my hours because Christmas is coming along. I got involved in the St Pancras Way Fund Day. I'm just really rammed at the moment. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm pretty busy too. I've got... Five essay deadlines, and the dissertation, yeah, yeah, and my work have made me go full-time, and I've had to take on another job, and I'm doing cat visits, and I did that St Pancras way thing, and, you know, I had to uh, step in and serve, because someone had dropped out at church at uh, uh, this service, and, you know what, like I had to go to school to some things my kids have got going on, but, well... You know, I'm so busy at the moment that, like, I'm having to stay up till midnight every night and then get up at five. Oh, really? Well, I'm staying up till two and I'm getting up at half three. Um, And it's like a competition to see who's busiest. That's what we do. It's ridiculous. That's the I'm busy game. It's not very godly. At what point of busyness does compassion become the thing that drops off the agenda? How much do you need to have going on before... You can just walk past and leave a man to die. We probably need to go back to the drawing board of our lives and re-engineer it so that we've got margin in our lives for mercy and for needs that come up that we can invest ourselves into. Third reason why um, the priest might have thought, I just can't help him. Personal danger. Because he's on the road and this guy's just been mugged. He's just been beaten up and robbed. If the priest stops, he's in danger, isn't he? He needs to just get off that road as quick as he can, because it's not a safe place to be. Getting involved in mercy ministry can mean putting yourself in situations where your own safety is far from guaranteed. In fact, let me just break it to you. If you think you're ever in a situation where your safety is guaranteed, it's an illusion. There's no such situation. But getting involved in mercy ministry can mean going into some high-risk places. How many of you are feeling the nudge of God to go and live on a tough estate? How many of you are feeling the whisper of the Holy Spirit to go to a dangerous nation of the earth? And how many of you are resisting what God's leading you to do because of fears for your own safety? And yet Jesus says, look, if you follow me, take up your cross and come where I lead you. And the fourth reason why the priest might (coughs) not have... um, Sorry. My throat is going. Yeah, his fourth reason why he might not have wanted to help is uh, religious sacrifice. The world this priest lived in was the religious world. It was all about the sacrifices he offered in the temple. His ministry commitments that he had back home. It was about formal, organised religion yet clearly, he hadn't meditated on the scripture that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He hadn't taken in the truth that later on in the Bible would be expressed like this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, if your religion is such that you don't have space for compassion, your religion's a joke. It's a joke. So, um, for the priest, he's got these reasons. One or more of them will have really kind of weighed heavy on him, and he decides not to help. He just passes the guy by. He leaves this stripped, beaten guy to die in the dirt as he goes on his way to serve God. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, then, then verse 32 So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the Levites, they were like the assistant priests. They were other members of the tribe of Levi who weren't descended from Aaron. So they helped out in the temple as well, but they never got to do the really cool stuff like make the sacrifices and that kind of thing. And as he approaches, um, it may be some of the same reasons as it was for the priest, why he didn't want to help, but I think there's one more reason as well that would be unique to the Levite, and it's this. The road that was quite straight and going downhill, you could see for miles ahead of you what was going on. And so this Levite, as he's approaching, he'll have seen the priest come to this um, guy lying by the side of the road, and he'll have seen the priest take a wide berth and avoid him. So the Levite, with these scriptures about ceremonial purity, ringing around his head, and not sure what to do with them, he'll be thinking, well, whoa, if the priest, if my boss, the guy who's senior over me, if he thinks, you know what, I just can't go near him, well, I definitely can't go there. So I think there's another reason for him. Some of you have been influenced by people in authority over you, whether it's your parents, mentors, or church leaders who either have um, decided not to show compassion or just been indifferent to it. Don't follow suit. When it's talking about your leaders, uh, the Bible says things like, oh, like Paul writes in the Bible, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But if your leaders aren't being Christ-like, you don't follow them. You follow them where they follow Christ. So this Levi, another religious figure, he passes by as well. And then verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's remarkable, it's a remarkable twist in this story. The Samaritans were kind of the half-breeds who, um, the Jewish nation, they looked down upon them. A few hundred years before, you'd had a civil war, uh, and the northern kingdom, which later became the Samaritans, had split from the southern kingdom, which became the Jewish nation. And this northern kingdom had turned from God, turned to false idols, and they'd been taken over by foreign powers. They'd kind of interbred with the foreign nations. They'd kept something of biblical uh, faith. They'd kept the first five books of the Old Testament. But they'd mingled in loads of kind of false religious practices. And so the Jews would look at them and think, you know, they're an insult to God. They've taken it, they've watered it down, they've twisted it, they've manipulated it. And they really despised them. And so there was this huge kind of racial tension and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Probably uh, of a level quite comparable to apartheid South Africa. There was a real um, hatred animosity going on there. And so whilst the, the priest and the Levite found reasons not to help this Samaritan, he overcame all of those reasons. He overcame ceremonial uncleanness. He overcame busyness and personal danger. He overcame racial tension. All of it for one simple reason. He had compassion. He saw him. He didn't have to stir this up. He just saw the need and none of the rest of it mattered. Here was a guy lying on his own blood in the gutter. He had to help him. It's beautiful. It's so simple, but it's so profound. He saw him and he had to help. He helped a guy who wasn't like him. What kind of person wouldn't you be willing to help? What kind of bridge wouldn't you be willing to cross? Would you help people different, like racially to you, or from a different social background? What about people whose politics is different? What about people of a different sexual orientation? What about people of a different personality type? What bridge is too big for you to cross to help someone in need? Jesus' story teaches us that splitting hairs about who is our neighbour is the wrong approach. The right approach is to ask, how can I be a neighbour to whoever is in need? And that's about our heart. And so, here's what he did. Verse 34. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. (coughs) and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back so he poured oil and wine on that's his own supplies for the journey that he's using up to help this guy he gave him his own animal which meant that he had to walk he went to the inn and he left money there he left two denarii now, just so you get this, the exchange rate, two denarii, would be about 150 quid. okay? This wasn't just leaving a little bit of small change. And then he said, and anything else, I'll pay that as well. Effectively, he gave them his credit card details and says, whatever other costs there are, just bill me for it. This wasn't just a kind of small time thing. This was deep, committed, costly, inconvenient compassion. He did more than the minimum. He did all that he could to help this guy. This guy is the neighbour in the story. And then Jesus says to all of us, now, you go and do likewise. What God wants from humanity on a horizontal level in our dealings with each other is this. This kind of love, this kind of compassion. And as um, those of us who call ourselves Christians are reborn and the Spirit's dwelling in us, this is the kind of love that he's birthing in us and enabling us to be able to show to other people. So that's the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to rewind a second now and look at the story of the conversation that Jesus has with this man. So we'll go back to verse 25, just before where we started before. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. When it says a lawyer, it's not meaning what we think of as lawyers, who are the guys who argue in court. This is talking about like Old Testament biblical law. So, by saying a lawyer, it's meaning a Bible geek stood up to put him to the test. He's the orthodoxy police. You know, we believe that doctrine matters. It's important that we're clear on what we believe. But some people, they just love to use it as a weapon. They love to use doctrine to sit over you and get to beat you up with it and give you a bit of a grilling, theological grilling. And that's what this guy's doing to Jesus. This isn't a discussion. This is an exam. His question is, has Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens and the earth, got good enough theology for this man? My guess is that yes, he has. But like him, maybe some of you want to put Jesus to the test. Maybe you're here thinking, yeah, Jesus has got something to prove. That's not a good thing. Let me just be clear what I mean. If you're like, okay, I don't know. I've got some real genuine questions that I don't understand. I'm willing to learn. And Jesus, if you're there, show yourself and answer my questions. Fantastic, he'll honour that. You know, the Bible says you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But if you've come to put him to the test, and the difference really is what's going on in your heart usually, you'll find that what he'll do is he'll flip it on you. He's got a habit of doing that. You think you've come to Jesus with some penetrating questions, but like he's got something to prove. And bam, in an instant, you're like having to kind of be all defensive and answer stuff yourself. It's his habit. Look here, verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. By verse 29, he, desiring to justify himself, Jesus flips it on him. Some of you, some of you who are here to test Jesus, I'm praying that he'll flip it on you tonight, that he'll ask you some questions that will, in love, break your heart, expose your flaws. And just open you up to receive his grace and mercy. Because it's beautiful, his grace and mercy. And then the test that he has for Jesus. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Not a very good question. Not a very good question at all. He's saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking what he needs to do to get something that's meant to be given as a gift. It's a bad question. And as Steph was explaining to us a couple of weeks ago, in theory, there is something you can do, which makes it all the more dangerous a question. Because if you want to earn eternal life for yourself, it's quite straightforward really, complete the entire law of God perfectly, every minute of your life, every breath that you take, every thought that goes through your head, every word that you say, every action that you do, every attitude in your heart, entirely perfect, great, you've done it, brilliant, here's the problem, none of us do, none of us ever have, none of us will, and even if you would say, okay, from now on I'll do it, and even if you succeeded it, the like 20 odd years before where you failed would count against you anyway, so it wouldn't work. It's meant to be given as a gift, and it's meant to be received as a gift. So this guy's barking up the wrong tree with his question. So Jesus says, well, what do you reckon? You're meant to be an expert in the Bible, you tell me. And he says, well, seems to me like if if I love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my mind, and if I love my neighbour as myself, then I'll inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, yeah, if, if you do that, you will, spot on. Now, I wouldn't advise any of you to try and inherit eternal life that way. It won't work for you, because you won't be able to do it. But let me tell you this, that is a beautiful summary of what eternal life looks like. Once it's been given you as a gift, it's a beautiful summary of what salvation life looks like. Loving God, deep, intense affection for Him. Cherishing Him, valuing Him, and letting that overflow into your action. Loving Him with all your heart, right from the core of who you are. Loving him with all your soul, so your spirituality is centred on Jesus. You know, so many people um, say, I'm a spiritual person. That doesn't mean anything. That's just hollow, empty words, unless it's, it's actually got any content to it. Unless it's actually your spirit meeting with God. unless it's just hollow. Him with all your strength, giving everything you've got into loving him. Loving him with all your mind, thinking about him, dwelling upon him. And then love your neighbour. Again, it's deep, intense affection for them, cherishing them, valuing them, and letting it overflow into your actions. Loving your neighbour as you love yourself. So, this guy came to Jesus saying, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me. He's like, love God and love people. And Jesus is like, yeah, bang on, I agree. My advice to the lawyer now would be, get out while you're ahead. You've just said something to Jesus, and he's agreed with you. That's quite good going. Quit right now. He doesn't do it. He asks another question. And look at his motive for the question. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my (coughs) neighbour? So he's talking to Jesus, right? And while he's talking to Jesus, he's trying to make himself look good. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? It's going to go badly for him, yeah? What's scary is some of us probably actually do that while we pray. We're talking to Jesus and at the same time we're trying to make ourselves look good. But that's another one for another day. This guy tries it anyway. He tries to make himself look good. But let's have a look at the dynamic here. This is really interesting. How is the question that he asks an attempt to justify himself? Because he says to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Well, if he's trying to justify himself, he's clearly expecting to come out of this conversation looking really good. I don't think he was blindsided by Jesus' answer. I don't think it's like he was expecting Jesus to say, Who is your neighbour? The guy who lives next door to you, obs. Don't think he was expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> I think what he was expecting... In fact, before that, let me give you a little bit of background that will help you see this. The lawyers, they were kind of associated with this group called the Pharisees. Okay? And the Pharisees were really, really good at mercy ministry. They gave to the poor... If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes reference to the fact that these guys would give to the poor, and that other people would look on and be impressed. Now, he challenged kind of their showiness about it, but the fact is they did it, and they did it a lot. And a particular speciality they had was helping travellers who who've been mugged on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, I think this is what the lawyer expected from the conversation. So, Mr Jesus, you tell me, who is my neighbour? Well, it's everybody. It isn't just the guy who lives next door to you. It's the down and out. It's the widow, the orphan. It's the broken, the beaten and the down. It's everybody. That's who you should be living as yourself. Get in. I'm already doing it. Look at me. I think mean, that's how he was expecting it to go. But here's my question then in light of that that, that puzzles me even more. Why, when this guy comes to Jesus trying to justify himself, does Jesus answer with a story where the hero of the story does what this man does? Uh, you know, you'd have thought Jesus would tell him a story about something that he didn't do. You'd have thought Jesus would tell him a story where he'd be like, oh, that's what I should be doing, rather than being like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I do. Well, yeah, Jesus does actually tell a story that exposes where this man doesn't love his neighbour. But it's a little bit more subtle than we might first imagine. I want to just kind of have you hear the story inside the head of this lawyer. Okay, so let's get his kind of thought process going on while Jesus tells the story. So you've got a guy who walks down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho and uh, robbers attack him. They strip him, they beat him, and they leave him to die. And he's thinking... I like where the story's going. Only yesterday I was helping a guy just like that. If that's who the neighbour is that we're meant to help, yeah, this, this is going well. Now, by chance, a priest was walking down that road. Oh, a priest. He's not going to help, is he? Because the priests, they're, they're sellouts. You know, the Romans have occupied the land, and they're just taking money. They're not true men of God. I'm the real Bible guy. They've just compromised. They never help the poor. This priest, he's not going to help. And the priest passed him by on the other side. Yep. Thought he would. Then, a Levite came down the same road. A Levite, yeah. Fat chance he's going to help. The Levites, yeah, maybe God was in it once, but there's no spirit in that anymore. He's just a religious relic from a past era. He's not going to help the guy. And the Levite passed by... On the other side. Exactly. Exactly. Now let's just pause. What's going to be the end of the story in this lawyer's mind? It's going to go a little bit like this, isn't it? And then a Pharisee walked past. And we all know that the Pharisees have this mercy ministry for travellers who've been murdered. And the Pharisee picks him up, puts him on his beast, takes him to an inn, and pays for him to be recovered to hell. Now which of these guys is the neighbour? Yeah, it's the Pharisee, isn't it? Well done, on your way. That's how he was expecting the story to go. Here's how the story goes instead. Now a Samaritan, what? A Samaritan? You can't make a Samaritan the hero of the story. No, the Samaritans, they're dirty, they're half-breeds. They're compromised, they're sellouts. You can't take the glory that belongs to me and my team and give it to a Samaritan. No, I'm not having it. That's That's just in his head, he's not saying this out loud. Uh, (laughs) Yeah? But that's kind of the reaction you'd provoke. There are four guys in the story. You've got the guy who was beaten up, the priest, the Levite and the Samaritan. How many of them did this lawyer show mercy to? One of them. The guy who was beaten up, there's mercy. The priest, he looks down his nose on him as a sellout. Levite, exactly the same. Samaritan truly despised him. And at the end of it, Jesus really nails him. Because he wants to make him say it. He says to him, okay, out of these guys, which is the one that was a neighbour to him? Well, the lawyer, he can't even bring himself to say it. He won't even go... Uh, It was the Samaritan. He won't even say the words. He's like, um, yeah, whichever one showed him mercy. Yeah, I don't really remember, but I think one of them did. You know, he won't even say the Samaritan was the one who got it right. Jesus has nailed him. He's utterly exposed, totally lacking in neighbourly love, totally lacking in mercy. And then Jesus rubs it in at the end. He said, oh, oh, the Samaritan guy, well, you go and be like him then. Ouch, that must hurt. I think some of us have been a bit shaken up today with the realisation that our neighbour is whoever is in need. It's whoever is in need. Some of us, we already get that. We're already spending ourselves on the needy. But I think Jesus might have something else to shake us up with as well. And he wants to remind you that the guy who's really close to you, the person who's doing what you do, but just not doing it as well as you'd like to think you do it, who kind of compromises it and sells it out, that's your neighbour as well. This is Jesus. He really shakes things up and challenges things. You know, when you're watching the news and you see elements within the Church of England who look like they're trying to sell out the Gospel, the message of this Scripture is love them. They 're your neighbor when you hear stories of churches where the prosperity gospel is what they're teaching, like, like it's God 's plan that you 're rich and have a fleet of private jets, and, and that 's what Jesus has for you. well, you can disagree with them, and you should. You can challenge them, and you should, but the message of this scripture is love them because they 're your neighbor. Some of you, you're really into the social action deal. You're really into um, helping uh, the hungry, helping the homeless, helping uh, the addicts, helping whoever has a need. But you can't stand the religious right and their smugness and their um, indifference and their self-righteousness. You just have your blood boil when you see them. The message of the scriptures, they're your neighbour as well. Love them. Jesus' vision for loving your neighbour is way, way bigger than any of ours would be. You don't get to divide into who's your neighbour and who's not. Whatever their need is, they're your neighbour. Whatever their race is, they're your neighbour. Even whatever their sin is, wherever they've got it wrong, they're your neighbour. The issue isn't do they count as your neighbour. The issue is are you acting as a neighbour to them. Jesus really has a habit, doesn't he, of kind of shaking us up and challenging stuff. I think as we're coming towards the end, I'd just like to point out, it would be inappropriate to hear this scripture and make your only response to it to be to try and do it. Now, I think you should try and do it, but that shouldn't be your only response. Why? Because if you did that, then one of two things would happen. Either you'd quite obviously fail in which case you'd get really down and depressed and this would have been a waste of time and you'd have no hope. Or, you'd think that you've succeeded, you'd stand before Jesus on the final day and he'd do to you like what he did to this lawyer, ask a few more questions, probe a bit more, and you'd find out, oh no, I didn't actually succeed after all. Simply put, deep heartfelt love of our neighbour, just like deep heartfelt love of God, is something in which we all fall short. We can aspire to, but we fall so far short. What gives us hope is the fact that this passage also works on an entirely different level. You see, if we were to be transplanted into the story, I don't think we'd be the priest. I don't think we'd be the Levite. And I don't think we'd be the Samaritan. I think we'd be the guy who got beaten up at the side of the road. Scripture tells us that we're dead in our sin. It tells us that after we rebelled against God, we were stripped of our righteousness and naked. We're broken. We're hurting. We can't help ourselves. We can't drag ourselves to a place where we can be helped. We're broken, hurting, sinful people whose only hope is to find mercy, to find someone who will show mercy to us. And just like the man in the story, those who we'd want to look look to for help just pass us by. You know, ultimately, your family can't help you out of your predicament, and nor can your friends. Religion can't help you, nor can spirituality. Your career can't help, nor can your relationship, nor can your education. Your street cred won't do it. Whatever power and influence and authority you think you have, it will not help you, ultimately. Whatever parties you go to, whatever drugs you take, won't provide it. We're looking for this stuff to try and help us to our feet, to provide healing for the deep hurts that we have, and to show the mercy that we need. But none of it will do it. None of it does. I know a lot of people who've tried it. I know no one who's found it to work. Ultimately, it will just pass us by and leave us to die in the dirt. And then when all looks bleak, when all hope seems to have gone, along comes the last person you'd expect to help. A Galilean carpenter named Jesus Christ. The true good Samaritan. I've got no idea how you feel about Jesus. He's a scorned and despised man by much of humanity. He came to this earth and we hated him and we killed him. And he's still hated and scorned by millions today. And yet, as he sees you beaten and stripped and lying there in your own blood and in the dirt, he dismounts from his animal. He pours his oil and wine on you to soothe you. He helps you up. He puts you onto his own beast. And he walks beside you. He takes you to a place of healing. And he pays the price for you to be healed. Only the price isn't two denarii. It's not 150 pound. The price is his own body broken for you. The Bible says that by his stripes we're healed. And he nurses you to health. You're made new. You're given a brand new heart and a brand new start. Your sins are washed away. You're brought into a community. You're given a power in prayer and the spirit of God comes to dwell within you. You're adopted into God's family. You have hope and a future. You are clean You are holy, you are accepted, you are welcome, and you're worthwhile. Your life is set on a rock, and you have a glorious new purpose. And it's all because he stopped, and he came, and he showed compassion to you. This is what the gospel is. The Christian message, primarily, it's not, be good, show mercy. It's the story of Jesus, and what he'll do for you, and the mercy that he shows into your life. And then the life you live of mercy, it flows out of that. That's part of the new life he empowers. But the gospel is the story of what he does for you. And it's a gift. It's an absolutely free gift. And all you need to do to have it is receive it. That's it. You don't have to pay a fee. You don't have to earn it by doing good deeds. You just have to receive it. The Bible says this. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're kind of at the end of the message. But I'm aware there may be people here who haven't received him. People here who, who still know the hopelessness. And I'm just waiting for someone in mercy to pick you up out of the dirt and bring healing to you. Jesus will do it for you. He'll do it for you tonight. I want to give you an opportunity to respond and to receive him. I think here's how we're going to do it. I'm just going to ask everyone to bow your head. Just to create an atmosphere of privacy. So there's not people looking around. And just if that's you, if you're saying, yeah, that's me never received this before, but man, I need it and I want it, just raise your hand, just indicate that that's you, you want to receive it for the very first time. Okay, cool, I see that hand, thank you. Is there anyone else? Okay, cool. Cool. Thanks, everybody. We're going uh, to continue responding in a number of ways. I'm going to ask the band to jump forward. We're going to um, sing some songs of praise. We've got the bread and the wine celebrating his broken body for us. So, if you're a believer, sharing the bread, sharing the wine, remember that he came and he paid the price for your healing. So let's sing, let's take communion, let's kind of just be open to God speaking, whatever he wants to do. This is his time to work among us. Amen.